Welcome to the Audiobook Speakeasy. I'm Rich Miller, and I'm your host here at the Speakeasy. This is where you'll meet narrators, coaches, engineers, and other audiobook professionals, as well as some listeners who'll be sharing what they look for in a good audiobook. If you're interested in audiobook production, you've come to the right place. So come on in, grab a drink, pull up a chair, and join us for a friendly chat about audiobooks. Joining me tonight in the Speakeasy is the man who's at the helm of a major audiobook publishing company, Worldwide Audio Limited, which is the parent company of B Audio. He's also been the CEO of United Press International and the managing editor of the Sunday London Times. James Adams, thanks for dropping by the Speakeasy tonight. Happy to be here. Very glad you could make it. James, what are you drinking tonight? Well, uh, after a bad bout of hepatitis many years ago, I'm stuck with sparkling water. So that's my uh, my tipple of choice. I can't think of a better reason to not be drinking alcohol than hepatitis. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, hopefully you won't mind if I join you in a drink that actually has some alcohol in it. I, I believe you're out there on the uh, on the left coast. Is that right? That's exactly right. I'm in a town called Ashland, which is uh, home of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And I moved here from Washington, D.C. about uh, 15 years ago. I love Ashland. We've been up there two or three times now, and I just had a great time. It's not just the festival, but it's a great little town. It well, is. It's, it's remarkable. Very nice. Well, I'm going to join you with uh, some Oregon Spirit Distillers Straight American Wheat Whiskey. So they're out in Bend, which is quite a ways from Ashland. But I figured, well, they're still in Oregon. So figured it would work out. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So uh, you don't sound like you grew up in Oregon, James. Uh, Where are you from? What was life growing? What was life like growing up there? Well, I grew up in uh, the northeast of England and... um, uh, as you might tell from my voice, although I've been uh, an American now for uh, since uh, 1998, and um, I don't know, quite know why my voice hasn't changed along with my nationality, but uh, such is life. <laughs> well, that's that's fine. It, uh, it definitely sounds like a, a London thing there. So I imagine that the climate where you grew up since it was in the UK is probably pretty close to what you're getting out there in uh, in Oregon. Yeah, kind of. I mean, you have the very distinctive seasons, but not the uh, the uh, more miserable experience in the summer. Here, the summers are, are are lovely for about four months of the year with no rain, not a cloud in the sky. So I prefer it here than there, I have to say. <laughs> Do you get back much? Not really. It's too long ago, and and I and I left because. Um, like many people who became Americans, uh, this was the land of opportunity, and and it's proved to be true. Oh, well, that's good. Good to hear. So uh, did you go to school back in England? I did. I went, uh, I had one of those educations where I went to um, boarding school when I was seven, and uh, uh, and then when I went to another boarding school when I was 13, and then when I graduated, I never went to school again. <laughs> I can't blame you there. I got out of college, and I thought, well, I could go for a master's. Nope, not going to happen. Yeah, exactly. I'd had enough of being told what to do or what to think, for that matter. <laughs> totally understand. So uh, since getting out of school, you have had quite a career from uh, from what I got from your bio and uh, reading up on you a little online. Extraordinary, to say the least. So the reason I contacted you was specifically because of what you're doing in the audiobook world, but I'm certain that everyone listening will be fascinated by the path that got you to the top of the audiobook world. So uh, walk me through the various positions that you've held that got you to the top of the biggest audiobook production company in the world. Well, I started uh, my career as a, as a journalist, and uh, I worked at the London Sunday Times for quite a long time doing various, first of all, sort of foreign reporting, wars and that kind of thing. And then um, I did uh, national security. Um, but at the same time, I had a, an executive career. So uh, I edited various sections and then became managing editor while still holding the title of defense correspondent. And while doing all of that, I started writing books uh, and I've written about 17, I think now, mostly on uh, intelligence uh, and terrorism, counterterrorism. I'm a specialist in the world of covert warfare. So I did that for a while and then 
I had uh, uh, two young children and wanted to give them a different life than my own uh, growing up. <laughs> so I appointed myself to Washington and became the Washington correspondent for the paper and did that for a, a few years. So I was able to work at home, then went to be CEO at UPI, then set up my own cyber intelligence business. And while doing that, I was asked to be on the board of the National Security Agency because they were looking for some sort of fresh ideas. And um, then I chaired a technology oversight panel there that looked at future technology, sort of $20 billion worth of stuff. And because I was kind of inside the tent then with security clearances and whatnot, um, I started doing one or two other things for different um, agencies uh, on the uh, kind of covert operations and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, which was all pretty interesting, and then moved out to uh, to Ashland uh, just before 9-11, which was not very good timing as I spent <laughs> months going back there every week for uh, a long time. And, um, uh, and then... I set up a virtual intelligence agency, which did some kind of rapid prototyping and some various things. And then um, I set up uh, B Audio because, by chance, really, I uh, somebody suggested I narrate audiobooks. So uh, I did that for a little bit. Tried to buy an audiobook production company and failed and thought, well, if it was a clean sheet, what would I do? So I set up the audio, which uses technology uh, and uh, a process that allows for everybody who participates in the audiobook production process to, uh, to work at home um, with to very high professional standards. And because we reduce costs by doing that, we're able to be very competitive and uh, keep people employed and so on. And it's worked out very well. Well, that, that's great. So I'm, I'm interested back at the London, London Sunday Times. So you became the managing editor and you were still a foreign correspondent and you were writing books at the time? Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a living example of uh, dysfunction. Uh, <laughs> that, I was going to say, that, did, that you, is... did, did you get any sleep during that time period? Not really. I wrote a book every 15 months for 20 years or something. And, and uh, <clears throat> it was really, uh, I, I don't quite know why I did all that. Probably insecurity. Uh, this is going to fail. So I need a backup. And when that fails, I have a third string to my bow. So it'll all be all right. Or sure. Something. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Sounds fascinating though. I mean, I'm sure that being, uh, you know, that high up in the Sunday London times and actually still doing the work, you saw a lot of different things that were happening at the time right up close. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to be, I'm not very interested in, in, um, power or title really. I'm interested in making things work. And, and so I, I didn't, I didn't really care about being managing editor or whatever that sort of might mean. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really wanted to, uh, the reason I became a journalist in the first place was that, that I'm, I'm very curious and, and like to ask, have permission to ask questions of folk and, and being a national security guy was wonderful because I got to fly in every, every fast jet. Uh, I got to go in submarines and, you know, it was a boy's, a boy's dream in many respects, but I'm also very interested in strategy, the causes and con consequences of war, having seen, uh, unfortunately, the, the consequences of it, um, dead people and whatnot. I, I'm very interested in uh, understanding how those things occur and then what can be done to prevent them. And so I wanted to continue to apply that knowledge, uh, both in, in, uh, journalism and in, in, uh, writing books and then, uh, in work for the intelligence community. And then that, so it sounds like that pretty much led directly into getting involved with the different agencies, uh, government agencies that would be working in that area. Well, it was one of those weird things that actually that could only 
happen in in uh, literally only in America. So about a year after I'd become a citizen, the uh, the new director of NSA, a guy called Mike Hayden, was asking his folks um, sort of in his outer office, yeah, I've got to get some people in here who are not just generals and admirals. Who, who can I get? And um, I'd interviewed Mike for a book I'd done on uh, cyber warfare uh, when he was head of Air Force Intelligence. And uh, somebody in his outer office said, well, we'll get this guy. And they had a copy of Wired magazine, and there was a picture of me because uh, they'd just done a profile of me um, in there. And he said, oh, I know that guy. Get him on the phone. And before uh, so the phone rang, it was Mike. He said, do you want to join the board? And I believe in service. Uh, and so uh, I said, sure. And then uh, just a very short time later, I was having been trying to find the keyhole of the house of uh, the secrets of the world, I was suddenly roaming through the the most secret place in the world looking at all the stuff that was going on. It yeah, was really must have been, quite a, yeah, amazing experience. Yeah, it must have been fascinating. That's great. Yeah. So the reason that this guy knew of you was because you had interviewed him. Yeah, that's exactly. great. That's great. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna file that away sometime. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, so then at some point you said somebody suggested that maybe you should narrate audiobooks. Was part of the reason for you thinking that was a good idea was because you had your own books? Did you start narrating with your own books? No, I've n- not narrated any of my books. No, oh. it was it was just I was here. Um, somebody who my daughter was in Pony Club and. A mother in Pony Club worked for an audiobook company and she said, Oh, you've got a voice, you know, you should come in. And I I really didn't know anything about audiobooks. And I I turned up and in one of those uh strange things of life, they gave me something or other to read. And it was uh at the end of that uh, sort of audition, I guess, they said, oh, yeah, great. Here's a book. Uh, come in tomorrow at nine o'clock and uh, off you go. That's fantastic. And um, so I, I narrated quite a lot of audiobooks, actually. But I I was very struck. Uh, I, I'm, I'm quite interested in technology and, and uh, how to make things work better. And I was very struck by... First of all, how much it costs to create an audiobook, mm-hmm. and how extraordinarily inefficient it was. In that you had to go into the studio, you had to sit there with a producer or a director, and then there were people behind that and behind that, and it just seemed kind of very twenty or thirty years out of date. Mm-hmm. And and so when, I, when was this? This was probably. 2005 maybe okay so a little over 10 years ago yeah and it just seemed like well i could come in here to this place and i could i could just make it 50 times better and therefore hire more people therefore you know etc etc and and that's why i tried to buy it and um but that was not a a very um well, it was an unsuccessful experience. So that's why I set up on my own because it's much easier in many respects to do something when you're starting from scratch rather than like when I went to UPI. I mean, I, my task there was completely changing the whole organization and moving it from a kind of terrestrial environment to a a digital environment. And, and those things are always very painful. Mm-hmm. So setting something up on, on my own was, you know, I know how to do it and it was pretty straightforward really. And even though there was a lot of learning as I, as I went, cause it's easy to dream up the idea, but when you don't really know what you're doing, which I usually happen to clue what I'm doing, it, um, <laughs> it, it takes a bit of time to get it right and refining the process changing the technology because the technology is moving very fast and all of that stuff so it was it's been a very interesting uh fascinating journey actually which i think is is only now beginning to 
to take shape because I think we're about to experience uh, a very revolutionary environment, which which in turn will be fascinating to be a part of. Yeah, I, I agree. I've spoken with several people about how quickly things are changing and, and how much they've already changed. I mean, I, I remember audiobooks back in the late 80s when they were on cassette tapes and sure. the, the style back then was, um, it was much different. You know, what what the narrators were doing was much different than what they're doing now, what they're expected to do now. And I, right. I really look forward to seeing how things change in the future. So we can, we can definitely get back to that. When, so when you started B audio, um, what did you have in mind in terms of material? Did you have any specific ideas in terms of what you wanted to get into audio or was the idea, I want to get everything into audio, anything? Well, the original, the original sort of driver, um, was I'd been trying to buy this company and and uh, it was all very frustrating and and then some I'd recorded uh, some books for a Christian publisher uh, I as narrator and they came to me and said we've got four hundred books or something that we need to have made into uh, audiobooks and uh, what do you know anyone who could do it well. That was a um, that was a kind of leading question. So the answer to the question is, of course, yes, I can take care of that for you. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I had no equipment, no people, no nothing actually. But um, in very short order, I I had bought a uh, a studio, I think, and and put it in in my house and then i i got some people from the oregon shakespeare festival and and kind of pulled it all together in a in in a shambolic way and we started recording all those books and and so that provided the the initial impetus and from that came uh i i went to new york and uh saw a bunch of uh of publishers and um got a whole bunch of contracts because I was offering uh, um, finished product at about a third of the cost of that everyone was paying at that time. Mm. So, so it was it was a very steep learning curve for me and a very, uh, yeah, it was a very in- challenging environment. But I was always, um, having worked for large corporations for many years, I, I was – pretty determined not to do what I'd seen and experienced directly myself, which was you treat everybody like dirt and you just get on with whatever it is and you tell everybody nothing and and so on. And I I wanted to make make the environment a little more collaborative and and to share the what was going on and why and all of that. So it's been my practice from the beginning to send out notes to to uh, everyone who works at B Audio, saying, you know, here's where we are, and this is what we're doing, and this is why we're doing it, and this is where we're going, and and in the process, we've we've gained, I don't, I don't know how many people now, maybe 400 people work for B Audio, and and mm-hmm. and then um, uh, we have a certain reputation, I guess, and and we work in every single genre that there is for. So kind of everybody. So, it, uh, so it started out with the religious themed uh, yeah. material, but then when you went to the studios in New York, it pretty much opened up at that point to just about anything. Yes, exactly. And and, and, and as as so often happens, the uh, the initial contract about halfway through, they said uh, you've been using the wrong dictionary for. Understood uh, for um, the meaning of different words, and having been told, I have to say, to use this dictionary, but then they said it was the wrong dictionary. It was a dictionary that was out of print, and so there was no <clears throat> way of getting hold of it. So then they took the work away and gave it to somebody else. I think it was probably some internal fight uh, that was going on that we paid the price for. And then, um, but by then it didn't really matter because there was lots of other things going on and, and we continued to grow and, you know, it was fine, but it was a, it was sort of classic business story where you think you've got a firm foundation and then suddenly it's all, it's all on sand. But I, yeah. um, 
I've, I've heard I've heard that from many people. Is that the last thing you want is to um, always assume that your biggest client is going to remain your biggest client for the rest of your career? Too right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that is interesting that you started with the uh, the religious theme stuff because I also noticed in the uh, in the Audible selections that I that I found under your name, it also looks like you narrated something by Christopher Hitchens. I did. Well, Hitch was a funnily enough a friend of mine back in the day. And, um, and then that book, uh, came to me from, from, uh, uh, to narrate, which was a, which, which was a joy because he, he's a wonderful writer and, uh, it was a real pleasure and uh, an interesting coincidence. And I've actually narrated a couple of other books that, um, I, I wrote, read, narrated a book on, um, uh, young Stalin that was written by another friend of mine called Simon Seabag Montefiore, amazingly enough. Wow. And um, that was fun too. So that's one of the joys of the of audiobooks, I think, is that um, you get to narrate some some really lovely writers. But I don't I don't really do much narration anymore because uh, I don't think it's fair that I would take work work away from uh, from narrators. So I, I, if somebody specifically asks, then I'll do it, but otherwise I, I really don't. Okay. It's, um, it's just interesting hitch. I'm sure that a lot of people in the religious community, maybe from the company that you started out with taking all their work would probably think that hitch was the antichrist himself. So it's just sort of, (laughs) sort of funny. It's uh, probably true, but then, but then part of the thing about, about the audiobook business, I, I, from my perspective is that my, my, beliefs or political leanings or anything is completely irrelevant. I just, you know, the book, you want to get the best voice for the, for the right book and deliver a good product and, you know, whatever it is, is, is fine. I don't have any judgment about any of that unless, unless it's something, uh, you know, if it's recommending something appalling like child molestation or something, then obviously we wouldn't do it. But most, but we do stuff from left or right and, religious or not or whatever I, I i i don't really have a view about any of those things all right that that's interesting i i'm asking everybody that because i always find it interesting where people draw the line some people have a, a hard line really early on and they won't do a whole lot of things and other people are like i'm a voice hire me and i'll say anything and uh, i'm really sure. interested to see where the companies fall on that as well and uh, it sounds yeah, like yeah and, and some and some people you know, we do uh, erotica, for example. Well, some some uh, people will not narrate erotica, and that's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to uh, hold myself in judgment over anybody's particular uh, views, and and I, which I think would be entirely in, inappropriate. But uh, you know, when I'm as a journalist, and I'd sit down and <clears throat> and interview uh, a fascist. Uh, with whom I fundamentally disagree um, about what his or her views, but I would interview the person because that was my job, mm-hmm. and, and I don't. It's not for me to say that person is worthless because they disagree with me. It's for me to tease out the the right information that other people can then make a judgment about. And I kind of feel the same about books. I mean, I'm very broad in my. Uh, both in what I read and what I do and where I've been and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm not really, uh, I personally have strong views about all kinds of things. Um, but you know, if, if for example, Harvey Weinstein wrote a book about his, uh, um, sexual behavior, uh, do I uh, think Harvey Weinstein is a disgusting individual? Sure. Would we narrate his book? Sure. Because that's a, that's what we do. We right. narrate books. Story to be told. Sure, exactly. Yeah. All right. So uh, a couple of years ago, B Audio was acquired, if I'm understanding correctly, although I might have the terminology wrong, by Worldwide Audio Limited. Yeah. So, so yeah. How, how did that happen? Well, um, so B Audio was set up as a virtual company. So that means there are no employees, including me, um, and that means too that overhead is kept to a, a minimum. There's no offices, no real estate, no none of the infrastructure that you uh, associate with companies, mm-hmm. because it seemed to me that 
uh, in the 21st century, many of those things are unnecessary costs that means that um, that the customer buying whatever it is in the, in the shop has to pay more money, first of all, and second, that uh, the people who do the work don't uh, earn as much as they could and don't have as much opportunity as they could. So I created that thing, and the way our business model works is that we charge uh, a set fee. It's a fixed flat rate for everybody who gets books from from uh, from us. And then that fee is divided up between uh, the narrator, the proofer, engineer, the scheduler, the executive producer. And then if there's any money left over at the end of the day, uh, that's what comes to me. So that's a fairly uh, clean and lean model, I think, and, and works pretty well. So uh, we did it for a while. And then... Uh, I also believe as a, a sort of general principle that uh, of trying to give as much money into the community in which I live to contribute to that community's well-being. So I try to hire local people and all that. So I'm in Oregon, so we were contributing, um, let's say, uh, around half a million dollars into Oregon, leaving aside what was going on elsewhere in the country and the world. Wow, that's great. And, and I was visited by uh, the Oregon Department of Employment, who said, uh, well, we're going to audit you because we think that your people should be employees. Well, as you know, um, everybody in the audiobook business, everybody works for everybody because they just kind of do, and, and that's fine. And nobody is exclusive to anyone else, usually, anyway. Mm -hmm. And I explained all that to them, and they said, well, you know, if you, if you, want, to, uh, if you want to stay and um, if we find that your people are employees, then we're going to be charging you 12.5% uh, on their fees, first of all. And then the state will come, uh, the federal government will come after you and you'll have to pay their whole stuff too. Wow. Which would essentially have bankrupted the business. Mm -hmm. So I explained to them how we work and how it all is and everybody's an independent contractor and whatnot. And they went off, did the uh, thing. And, and I think the reality probably was that um, that a virtual company was just not part of the way the their rules are structured. Mm -hmm. And so they, they couldn't really understand it and didn't know what to do with it. So they came back and said, every single person who worked for B Audio uh, is actually an employee, whether they earned $5 or $50,000, it didn't really matter. And uh, so that, and I, so that was going to cost me uh, I can't remember what, let's say it was going to cost $50,000 in uh, additional costs in Oregon. So I said, okay, well, fine. Uh, if that's what you want, you're going to have the opportunity of losing $500,000 and gaining 50000 So your net loss is 450000 Is that really what you want? Sounds like a bad deal. Well, their answer was a classic bureaucrat's answer, which was, well, that's not our problem. You know, yeah. just the rules are the rules. Okay, fine. So within a week, I'd sold the business, and that was the end of that. So that was the reason for it. So now it's owned by Worldwide Audio Limited, which you are the CEO of. Yeah, I, I'm the uh, chairman of, actually. The CEO is in the UK. So yeah, I, was, I was thinking, so this gets right back around to your roots. So they're located in the UK, but you don't get over well, there much. Well, no, because it's, it's, it remains a virtual company and they have operations in the UK and elsewhere. And, and I'm, uh, I'm fine with that. It doesn't really, um, it doesn't really make much material difference to me, uh, as an individual. I'm not actually trying to, uh, sell B audio for millions of dollars. I'm not trying to get out of the business. I'm not trying to, you know, the things that entrepreneurs often uh, might want to do don't really matter to me. So 
I'm I'm fine with uh, with the way the the system currently works, and I've been able to keep everybody employed and uh, keep the bureaucracy to a minimum, and you know life goes on. Yeah, all those sound like big pluses. Yeah, exactly. So, how long has Worldwide Audio been around? Well, Worldwide Audio emerged as a, as a uh, specifically to uh, there were some people in the UK who were interested in participating in the industry, which they thought has a great future, and so Worldwide Audio was formed to uh, to both to acquire B Audio and then to do various other things, which are still uh, in the works. I got it. So, so they, they sort of, part of the reason they came into existence was because of the situation with B. Exactly. All right. Got it. So how much, um, you said that you don't really do much narrating anymore unless somebody asks for you specifically. Um, what else do you do there? I mean, do you have a hand in choosing which narrators are going to be added to the roster, uh, or is that left to somebody else? I'm just wondering how many aspects of production you're involved in. I don't. Um, one of the things that I've learned over the years is uh, if you're a leader, uh, a skillful leader, um, make sure that he or she is surrounded by people who are much more skillful than he or she is in every area uh, that is relevant. Right. And so I, I provide um, my experiences in building and um, thinking strategically, I think. And Looking over the hill and seeing what's coming, uh, I ha- there is uh, I have a, a number two uh, called Jennifer Stoke, who is uh, a consummate professional, very detail orientated, which I am definitely not. <laughs> and uh, then worldwide has a, a somebody in um, the UK called Aubrey Wisley, and she does the uh, casting and that kind of thing. And then we have other people who provide training and, you know, so there's a whole network of, of folks who do things much, much better than I could ever do. And that, that really works very well indeed for everybody concerned. Um, and it's certainly, it, it is true that I could, um, I could change that by, you know, saying eliminating these five or 10 um, positions doing it all myself, but I think that the net effect would be uh, to produce a far worse product. And Mm. um, so, you know, it would give me a bit more money, but what's the point of of that if the the net effect on the business is a bad one? So I'm very happy with the way things are set up right now. Well, it sounds like it's working great. And uh, yeah, it seems seems to be. I mean, I think the, the challenge uh, the challenge in this environment is to keep pace with um, the technology changes that are happening. And, and, and as I said at the beginning, that they are, I believe, accelerating at, at a tremendous rate. And uh, I think that anything we've seen in the last 10 years is like nothing that's going to happen in the next five. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's true. I definitely did want to get back to that. Like, I, like I mentioned, I remember when books on tape were actually on tape Yeah, and uh, sure. then, then there were CDs and now they're almost exclusively streamed. I know there are a few CD, a few house publishing companies out there that still produce CDs, but I think that it's getting right. pretty rare. Um, right. But in addition to the format changes, there has also been a serious shift from a more straightforward sort of talking at you style to serious acting. Yes. Uh, in, so in terms of live narrators, where do you see audiobooks going in the next 10 or 20 years? Or, you know, as you mentioned, even maybe just the next five? Well, I think, and, and this may be a little um, radical, uh, but I think a lot of uh, narrators will, will um, their way of earning money will disappear and but what I mean by that is that uh, there is already uh, artificial intelligence is creating ways of mimicking uh, the human uh, body, the human mind, the human voice uh, that are uh, cr- making it indistinguishable from uh, the voice that is that is currently uh, spoken by by the human. So. Where where we are at the moment is that um, you you can cr- you can 
there is software around that will uh, take the human voice, uh, take five sentences of me speaking right now, and will make that into me uh, narrating a tale of two cities. What it doesn't do is provide the color and the intonation that makes the difference between a rubbish narration and a really brilliant narration. Right. And that is not a function of uh, the limits of the technology. It's a function of the algorithms that are created from data. So it's to be able to do that kind of um, subtle intonation is an algorithmic problem, not a limit of the technology, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so uh, where I think that we're going to go is um, into a very different place where uh, it may be, for example, and I, and I clearly don't know because it's not happened, but it may be that um, me, if you take me as an example of a narrator, you, you, I might, uh, I might uh, record five sentences um, of uh, a voice that would be as all the voice samples currently are on our website. And um, somebody could, uh, a client could listen to that and say, I want, I want Adams to, to narrate uh, this book. And Adams would, they, they would run it through the AI software and out would come the book, complete with intonation because the algorithms would know this is a moment of passion, this is a moment of sadness, this is whatever it is. So then the shift in the, in the way uh, the production would work would, be, would go from the narrator who would control uh, clearly all the means of voice production to the software that would take care of it. And then, uh, then the, the shift would go to the proofer who is listening to uh, what the AI solution has come up with and so, and so be able to tweak it by saying, well, you know, that sentence, that's it's not quite right. I need more, uh, I need more bass or I need more passion or I need more uh, a sense of, of tears in the voice or something like that. Uh-huh. And so the proofer could then just touch the keys and, and, and make that happen. So if you think about that as, as a, if you think about me now as, as the narrator, I am essentially going to be licensing my voice. And so for every, so the, the model of how uh, the creative process works becomes very different. So I license my voice to a company like uh, Worldwide Audio, and they would pay me a fee for every time my voice is used and for how long. And so my fee for lending my voice to a book might be a hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, five bucks, I don't know, some mm-hmm. number. Mm-hmm. And but if you look at it from if you look that's sort of alarming at one st- side of the coin, but the other side of the coin says, well, right now, if I really am working flat out, I can probably do a book a week. And uh, that's really a lot. Mm-hmm. Well, under this process, you might be able to do 50 books a week mm-hmm. because you don't actually have to do very much. You're just lending the voice. So that would seem to me then to say, so if you if you say the average cost of producing an audio book right now is 400 and $400 a finished hour or $500 a finished hour. So then you might say, well, the, the cost of producing an audiobook is going to be now 100 bucks or 50 bucks or some very different number. And that's going to uh, transform the industry, I think. And I would say that the context of this is not, if you, if you shift back from the audiobook industry for a second and you say, well, what is actually going to happen in the next five to ten years? Uh, well, the answer is that, um, and, and I'm not, I, I know a fair bit about artificial intelligence, so I'm not making this up really, but the answer is going to be um, 
every single question that has an, a yes, no answer will be available to everybody. And anyone who thinks they are going to be answering those questions is going to be out of a job. And so what that in turn means, and, and there's quite a lot of numbers that have been produced around all of this, is that tens of millions of people are going to lose their jobs. And it's not, uh, it's not the factory worker just. It's not the person who works in a, in a store. It's the legal assistant. It's the radiologist. It's actually uh. tons of doctors. It's all the professions are going to be decimated because it can just be done better by other solutions. So there, if you look at it in the broad strategic context, there is absolutely no reason at all that audiobooks and the audio industry more generally, all aspects of it, is not going to be similarly impacted. And the question is not, is it going to be impacted? The question is, what is it going to look like on the other side? And nobody knows, but you know what I've just outlined is, is one answer, maybe. Um, and the interesting thing about all of this is that it is, it is happening at such speed. I mean, there's a, there's a company with which I'm familiar that has two and a half million employees. They today have plans for 1.25 million of those to move on, get another job, but there won't be another job. And so our, our ability to um, get ahead of this or keep up with it or adjust to it is going to be the big challenge of the next decade, I think. Sounds like a huge challenge. Huge. And, and really, you know, my business is, is warfare, really. And, and if you look at, without wishing to be too gloomy, if you look at this particular time, and, and especially the time we're heading into, we're going to end up with um, a disenfranchised majority who have no investment in their own future or in the future of anyone else. If we're going to have kids coming out of school who have been educated for a world that will no longer exist. You're going to have a disconnected government that is largely irrelevant to everything that is going on around. We're going to have a huge and growing gulf between uh, rich and poor. So we, the, historically, if you look around the world of, at what's happened since the Industrial Revolution, these are all the ingredients of revolution. And it's, it's going to be a very challenging time because, you know, w w what have you heard from, from Washington about any of this? Answer, absolutely nothing. And does anybody understand it? Not really. Do they care? Well, they, they care when they have to care. But until then, you know, we're kind of all on our own. So it's, it's an interesting environment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> interesting. That, that's an understatement. So uh, you mentioned that, you know, you didn't want to be too gloomy. So if that's the less gloomy, what's the more gloomy picture? <laughs> well, I, 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 th I think if the uh, every, every um, uh, challenging political, economic and social environment has its moments. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, Kennedy arrives in America, Martin Luther King arrives in the South. Um, you get uh, leaders come out of crisis. The question is not, do leaders come out of crisis? The question is really, does the crisis get so unmanageable that it is very, uh, it becomes really hard. So if you look at the Industrial Revolution that lasted depending on how you, you, know, you think about it, uh, 100 plus years, it, out of the Industrial Revolution came uh, the collapse of the British Empire, uh, revolution uh, all over the world, the rise of communism, uh, Stalin and his uh, terrible brutality, uh, World War I, World War II, 100 million dead something you know i mean it was a catastrophic period 
And the Industrial Revolution was a 100-year thing. This is going to be maybe 10 years, maybe 15, maybe whatever, but it's going to be a fraction, and the consequences are going to be so rapid and mm -hmm. so everywhere. And so my, as a, as a, an employer or as a, uh, somebody with influence over an, an organization, my responsibility is to try to um, create the future rather than sitting about sucking my thumb and, and thinking, well, it's all going to be all right tomorrow because the only person who's going to make it right is me and I need to get on the stick. Mm -hmm. Well, that is fascinating. I was looking forward to getting into a discussion of uh, what's coming down the pike, but that is a fascinating take on it. And that is a lot to think about for, I think, pretty much everybody listening to this podcast. <laughs> and me too. That's why I never get any sleep. <laughs> so you're still not getting any sleep. I have to ask based on what you said earlier. So uh, how did it go with giving those kids a life that wasn't yours? Uh, well, that's an interesting question. So I would, uh, I never really spoke to my father or my mother in any meaningful way, and they played no real part in my uh, growing up or the decisions I took and so on. Mm -hmm. um, we have had a very, I've been very blessed with a very um, close family relationship with with my wife and two daughters and my elder daughter <clears throat> now works as the living editor at Vogue uh, she's 26 and my younger daughter who's 24 uh, now works um, running a foundation and uh, special projects for uh, a company in Washington DC so I'm very you know what do you what do you I, I look at it look at my I feel very fortunate and I don't regret for a, not for a single instant stepping away from uh, the managing editor senior executive at one of the largest media companies in the world blah 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 it's my life with Family life is far more important than any of that rubbish. That is fantastic to hear. I know that there are a lot of narrators who have struggled with um, doing the narration thing full time as opposed to doing whatever the corporate gig was that they were doing or doing both simultaneously so that they could transition at some point. And part of the reason for that with many of the people that I've spoken with is because they want to be at home. They they want to be able to spend more yeah. time with family. And, uh, that it is great to hear that you had that, you had that experience with your family. Yeah. And part of the thing, the reason, one of the reasons for making B audio structured in the way that it was, was for precisely that, because I want, I mean, why should people have to go to, go to a bloody office for God's sake? This is 2018. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. So I want to enable, uh, as much as is humanly possible, people to have the the joyful experience that technology can allow and and the freedom that 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 represents i mean the tyranny of the office is is the worst and and i just i just think that's crazy why why should that be imposed on anybody these days so anyway that, well, that, that's that is great that it is great to hear that so uh where can people find you online james do you uh do you do any continual writing about the subjects that you're so well versed in the the cyber terrorism and warfare and things like that you have a blog or sure. um, no, anything like really. that no i i i'm i ghost books for various people these days um but those are not under my own name of course mm -hmm. i um i tend to uh, it sounds sort of ridiculous given that we've been having this conversation, but I'm, I'm, I'm not very interested in myself and I'm certainly not very interested in droning on so that other people can say, you know, Oh God, isn't that interesting? <laughs> I, I don't really care what I have to say. So I don't do, um, Twitter. I don't, I'm on Facebook, but, uh, I don't do any, uh, blogging really. And I make speeches occasionally if people want me to, say so, but I would never, you know, I don't really advance myself at all. So, uh, I'm not really very 
very accessible. If you want to meet me, come and row with me on the lake outside of Ashland, where I am most mornings. That's great. That's great. I love hearing that. Um, I, I will say, though, that I'm awfully glad that you droned on tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you had that you could take some time and join me here in the uh, the audiobook speakeasy. I'm sure that there are a lot of audiobook professionals who are going to be really interested in what you had to say. <laughs> well, that's kind of you to say so. And if anybody wants to get hold of me, I'm sure they can uh, send me an email. Uh, and I'm always accessible and would always reply to anything that is sent to me. Okay. Where, where can they find, uh, what's your email address? Uh, James at B audio.com. Easy enough. I'm sure that most of the people listening are familiar with B audio. If they weren't before they are now. Okay. Good enough. <laughs> All <laughs> right. right. Thanks good a lot, James. Thanks. I really appreciate you coming in tonight. I, uh, I hope your sparkling water was as good as my, uh, Oregon straight wheat whiskey. <laughs> exactly. Thank you so much, Rich. I appreciate the opportunity. All right. Cheers. Take it easy. Well, that's it for tonight. Many thanks to James Adams for stopping by. I hope you were as interested to hear about James's vision for B-Audio and his thoughts about the future of the audiobook industry in general as I was. Only time will tell, but I think it's going to be an interesting ride. You can find the audiobook speakeasy on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean and all the apps that pull from iTunes. And you can find me at richvoiceproductions.com where I've got some samples and links to audiobooks I've narrated, a place where you can sign up for my monthly newsletter and where I'm also posting episodes of the audiobook speakeasy. If you're enjoying our speakeasy chats, please leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're not enjoying them, please find a podcast you do enjoy and leave them a review. If you think this show is educational, entertaining, or valuable simply because it gives you an excuse to sit down and enjoy a cocktail in an otherwise hectic day, I'd really appreciate it if you could visit patreon.com slash audiobookspeakeasy and donate a buck or two. Until we see you here at the Speakeasy again, I hope you can find some time to enjoy an audiobook. Cheers! Cheers!